Our second reading is taken from the book of 1 Samuel, chapters 18, 22, and 24. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and saying, and the saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped him twice. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the shepherd's sheepfold by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. May the Lord therefore ju be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. The word of the Lord. In his uh, 1981 book, Improving Your Serve, pastor and writer Chuck Swindoll recounts the story of a young seminary student up in Chicago who 
in the spring of one of his years, he was praying for a summer job that would pay some of his bills, but also enable him to do significant ministry. He hunted around for this job while praying, seeking the Lord, and nothing came up. So eventually, as the summer was hitting, he started looking in the want ads, and what he found was a bus driver on a South Chicago route not too far from where he was. So he got his training, and eventually he was basically on his own. And on the first couple of mornings as he went on his route in the south of Chicago, a gang of teenagers got on, the young men. They didn't pay. They refused to pay, but they also refused to get off. They spent the whole ride berating customers, other riders, and him, and then decided to leave when they wanted to. This happened several days in a row, and eventually he decided enough was enough, so on one of the days he was driving along and there he saw a policeman. So he pulled over, called the policeman on, and indicated that these guys hadn't paid. Well, instead of getting off, the young men paid. But the policeman got off. And as he turned the corner, the gang jumped him. They beat him, bloody, knocked out two teeth. He was knocked unconscious. When he woke up, the bus was empty. He drove it back to the depot got the week off and ended up in his apartment all alone, crying out to God, where are you, God? I asked for your blessing on this summer and this is what I get. I have done nothing wrong. Why did this happen to me? In the second half of the book of 1 Samuel, we're following the story of King David after he has been anointed by Samuel and then he has killed the Philistine giant. And yet the entire second half, Saul, the man he serves and honors, wants him dead. And yet David has done no wrong. How do we respond to injustice? How do we deal with an enemy? Or even just taking it a step simpler, to somebody who's just difficult to deal with? Well, let's look at this passage and see how it points us to acknowledging God and living in light of what God has done for us. So the backstory is this. It was just read to you by Stephen. The backstory is what we talked about last week. David has just killed the giant Goliath. And after the Israelite army has gone and destroyed the Philistines, they're now returning home. And every town they go into, the women come out and greet them, rejoicing and celebrating that they've had this victory over the Philistines. And the song, the refrain, the popular song that summer was, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul did not like this song. Verse 8 and 9 says, And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So Saul's response at this song is anger. And then it says he eyed David. That's basically a way of saying he was jealous and was watching him with intent to be able to harm him. Jealousy with intent to harm. You see, Saul viewed David not as a great prince or as a young man who was fighting battles on his behalf, not as a loyal servant. He viewed David as a threat. And think about it. To him, David was a threat to his status and his identity. Here is Saul. He is the king. He is the Lord's anointed. And then along comes David, who is 
also the Lord's anointed and seems to be more successful at all the things Saul is supposed to be good at. If David is the Lord's anointed, who am I? David is a threat to his identity and his status and his position and also to his future. If they're singing this song about him, what more can he have but my kingdom? Later on, he tells his son Jonathan, don't you see that as long as he is alive, you have no future throne? Saul can only view David as an enemy, and he intends to kill him. And if we had read through the rest of chapter 18 and the chapters that follow, more than six times Saul tries to kill David. Three times directly. Three different times he's sitting in his throne room, in his courtroom, and David is playing music, just trying to entertain and keep things calm. And Saul pulls up his spear and tries to pin him to the wall. Three times David ducks, doesn't retaliate, doesn't pick up the spear and throw it back. He just flees. Twice in the chapters that follow, Saul sends David on suicide missions to go and hunt down Philistines knowing that he is likely to die in the process. One morning, Saul has assassins wait outside the door of David's house in order to kill him. David has to escape out the back window. And finally, in the chapters leading up to chapter 24, which is what we're focusing on, Saul is personally hunting David with several thousand chosen soldiers. because David is a threat. And so that's the question I want us to think about for a little bit, is who poses a threat to you? Who is a threat to your position, your status, your identity, your future? In order to understand who might be a threat, you have to ask this question, what matters to you? What is a source of pride in your life? Is it your quality of work? Everyone knows you're the one who produces excellent work. Is it your reputation at work? You are the best at sales. You are the phenomenal marketing girl. You understand how to deal with these problems. Everyone turns to you when it's this issue. Or in social circles, what is your source of pride? Is it you are the loyal friend that everyone trusts in? Or you're the funny guy that when you show up, it makes the party better. Everyone's laughing. It kind of doesn't matter where we find our source of pride. It can be math or baseball or the flute. So long as it's where we find significance, it's a potential area of threat when somebody else is good at it. C.S. Lewis talked about pride being naturally competitive. He wrote in Mere Christianity, how much do I dislike it? Hold on, we have a quote here. There we go. How much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take notice of me or patronize me or show off? Each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's. It is because I want to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Pride is essentially competitive. It gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If I am a proud man, 
then as long as there is one man in the world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. As we examine ourselves, if someone else is good at or being recognized in any area that we find that's important to us, they are a potential threat. And the question is, what's to keep us from trying to kill them? Saul realizes this in a very clear statement in chapter 18, verse 12. We didn't read this, but Saul's assessment of the whole situation, or the assessment of the whole situation is Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. The old Western code is this town is not big enough for the two of us. If God is with you, if the Spirit of God dwells in you because by faith you have put your trust in Christ crucified for you, you acknowledge you're a sinner, you fall on the mercies of Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells in you, then any town you are in is big enough, not just for two, but for many. You don't take pride in the fact that God chose you, and in fact, what you really want in life is many more chosen ones. You want everyone to know the thing that's most important to you. You want them to know Jesus too. But if God is not with you, as he was not with Saul, then even a second person is too many to fit. Saul can only imagine a future without David. And so he hunts him to kill him. And that's when we come to this incident, a rather amusing but also powerful incident in chapter 24. Saul and all of his men are out hunting David. They come to a place where David and his several hundred men are hiding in a cave. Saul doesn't know that they're in there. He goes to the mouth of the cave in order to relieve himself. The men of David and and David are further back in the cave, and what happens is there is Saul all alone. There's nobody with him. He's completely exposed, literally, and he is totally vulnerable. And the men of David, these soldiers, are like, David, this is a sign from the Lord. You are the Lord's anointed. You are the future king. This guy has been hunting you. It is your right to kill him, In the old Western world, if the gun was pulled on you, you could shoot back, and it was defensible. In every way, it was defensible for David to get rid of Saul. And they're like, this is God. There's no other way this would have happened. Kill him, David. So Saul is there by himself. David approaches quietly behind, takes his sword, and cuts off a corner of the robe of Saul that's probably lying behind him some feet. He doesn't kill Saul, and yet he's immediately struck with remorse. He's instantly repentant. It's kind of weird. Why is he so repentant? All he's done is cut off some of his robe. Well, we gloss over the idea of a robe, but we've talked about it here before. A robe in the ancient world was highly symbolic. It was significant and symbolic of your office, your status, your wealth, your whole personhood. 
It's why Joseph's older brothers were so jealous and angry that his robe was distinct because it indicated office, status, and inheritance. It's why when Jonathan makes a covenant with David, he gives him his robe, signifying that David would take over the throne. He was relinquishing the princely role that he had in saying, David, you are the rightful future king. It's why the Pharisees, when they are angry at Jesus, they tear their robes, symbolically saying, I am tearing myself. And it's why the first thing that the father does in the prodigal son story after embracing and kissing his son is robe him. David realizes that while this is short of killing Saul, it is also an affront to Saul, to his status, his position, his role, his personhood. He was cut to the heart. We get the fullness of this in the speech that comes after Saul leaves the cave, and once he's some distance away, David comes out with the corner of the robe, and he pleads for Saul to be reconciled, reconciled to him and reconciled to the Lord. He starts with great humility. He elevates Saul. He calls him, my Lord the King. You are the Lord's anointed. You are my Father. And he bows himself physically to the ground, laying down his face to the ground, paying homage, honoring Saul. And the words that come out are pleading with Saul. He says, look, I am not trying to overthrow you. I am not trying to kill you. I cut off some of your robe, but I did not take your head, and I could have. And then he puts this weightiness on it and puts it on Saul. He says, let God be judge. Let God be judge between you and me but I will not take it into my own hands. In verse 10, we get the main statement in this whole thing. He says, you are the Lord's anointed. I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. You are the Lord's anointed, and I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. What holds David back from killing Saul? It's not because of anything Saul had done or not done, not anything in Saul that deserved it. It's rather because of what God had done. God had chosen Saul, and David feared and worshiped God first. You are the Lord's, the Lord's anointed. I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. You see, in the Old Testament, the Lord's anointed are those who act on behalf of and in place of God, empowered by the Spirit for particular callings. Abraham, Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah. To ignore or reject or strike at the Lord's anointed was to do the same to Yahweh. And David knows, even though the Lord has anointed him, that before that, the Lord anointed Saul. The Lord chose Saul. And I think David is also foreseeing where this anointed one thing goes. You see, the word anointed one is actually the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. It's translated in the Greek as Christos, Christ. Right? In the Old Testament, every Mashiach, every anointed one from Abraham to Elijah looked forward to the day when the true anointed one would come. When God would arrive, establishing his kingdom, and God would be king and present with Israel. 
they were looking for that day. But when the true anointed one came, of course, they didn't recognize him because he came not to rule, but to save. He doesn't hunt his enemies. The true anointed one dies for his enemies. And that's the good news that we hear. Paul puts it very clearly in Romans 5 when he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, enemies of God, enemies with God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, his anointed one. I think David is living in light of that because he's living in light of the grace of God in his own life, anticipating the gospel that he can only see in glimpses that is to come. He realizes that his chosenness is a gift. It's not payment. God did not choose him because he was so great. God chose him, therefore he was great. And he sees himself purely as the servant of the Lord, which means he's not living for himself at this point, but for God and God's glory. And so he restrains himself from harming Saul. And not only that, actually, according to the the phrasing of his speech, he actively desires Saul's well-being. The reason why he warns him about God being judge is because he says, look, Saul, you have turned from God. You're hunting me. I am one of the Lord's anointed. You're not innocent in doing this. If you do not turn from this way and be reconciled to me and be reconciled to God, you will face God's wrath. Be reconciled. He's pleading with him, desiring Saul's well-being. He wants Saul to flourish, not to be driven further from God. I find that really hard to do. So, I don't know what you do with somebody who's difficult, somebody who's challenging to you. Maybe you are the retaliatory type. I'm not. I'm the avoiding type. See, if I find somebody difficult or I just don't like them, I avoid them. So I'm not actively wishing ill for them. I'd rather they just go away. I like comfort, and avoidance is easier than confrontation. So by ignoring somebody I don't like, it's how I kill them. They no longer exist. And look, not everyone is easy to like. People very close to us, people you work with, people in your family are difficult people. (laughs) But what we're reminded about in the gospel is Jesus loves you, doesn't he? Jesus loves me. C.S. Lewis makes the claim that loving our enemy means wishing his good, but how do we do this? He says perhaps it makes it easier if we remember how he loves us, not for any nice, attractive qualities we think we have, just because we are his. David understands this, that God chose and loves him, not because of anything in him. Therefore, he is able to really love Saul, desiring desiring reconciliation with Saul, wanting Saul's well-being, his eternal well-being. So how do we do that then? How do we not just restrain from retaliating, but how do we actively love somebody like an enemy? Especially if you've been wrongly accused 
or hated for no reason, or dealt with severe injustices. And I don't mean to gloss over severe injustices that some of you have dealt with. It's easier for me to talk about it in theory and much, much harder in practice. To step into actual abuse, horrible betrayal, deep offense. But how can we want good for somebody who is evil? I take it a step harder, it's simpler, I mean, I, I, I find it hard to love just the unlovely, the difficult, those I don't like. So how do we do it? I think it depends, going back to what I was talking about earlier, on where we find our identity and worth. If my identity and worth is based at all on my gifts, or my talents, or my accomplishments, or my goodness, then what I will do is I will judge people on the same basis. And of course, my assessment of myself is always going to be biased in favor of me and against them. So, as an example, I tend to think of myself as somebody who is creative and has ideas. But in order to maintain that, what do I have to do? I'll have a tendency to think others' ideas are never as good as mine. To maintain my position, my identity, my worth, I must keep others down. Here's the tendency we have. We have a tendency to see ourselves in a rose-colored mirror, but to see others with dirt-smudged glasses. We always look good, they don't. We're always more altruistic, generous, patient than our enemy. And they're always more impatient, selfish, and mean-spirited. And even just to pull it away from Christianity, I don't think it's enough to simply say, try to, try to see the good in other people. Trying to see the good in other people works if they are actually good. It works if you like them or if they measure up to your standard of what good is. But what about for the bad, the evil, those who have done you wrong, or simply the unlovable and unlikable? If we go to the gospel instead of trying to see the good in them, we will recognize the gospel says no one is good. No one does right. All fall short. And until each of us sees the anointed one, Jesus, the true anointed one, as our only source of worth, not our gifting, not our accomplishments, not our goodness, but Jesus as our only source of worth, we will be unable to fully love the unlovely, the evil, the difficult. But when the gospel does transform my view of myself, I'm finally able to view others as God does. He is a sinner. Yep, just like me. In need of God's mercy, just like me. And that famous verse from John 3:16 ends up sounding like this, for God so loved not just the world, God so loved me that he sent his only son. God so loved that guy. Yeah, that guy. So much that he sent his only son. When we strike out or wish ill or talk bad about or try to retaliate, what we do is we betray our own unbelief. We may say we are a Christian, 
but we don't really believe the gospel. If you're the kind of person who's always offended, always feeling slighted, always feeling overlooked, what does that say about where you find your identity and worth? Your view of God is too small and your view of yourself is too big, and my guess is you don't really understand the gospel. But if the gospel is true, then every person you meet, even the most mean and hard-hearted and difficult, the most selfish and challenging, is someone that Christ died for, just like you. In Psalm 57, we read portions of it before the service and at the beginning, David is writing this psalm from the cave. He's being hunted by Saul, and this is what he writes. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. The word refuge that's used here is a word that's used 37 times in the Psalms. And it's one that David takes and reorients and gives it an entirely new meaning. That word in the Hebrew originally meant a location, a physical location, a city or a town where you went to escape when harm was coming to you. Somebody's trying to kill you, you go to that city, that place of refuge. But in the Psalms, David directs it away from a place and towards the Lord. One Old Testament professor suggested that what it means in the Psalms is a decision for Yahweh above anything or anyone else. David is saying, God alone is my source of salvation. I will trust in God alone. Not the ideas of my men, not the strength of my sword, not my conniving abilities, not how wise and shrewd I am, not my talents. I will trust in the Lord. Psalm 57, one says, in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. David is saying, God, I desire you above all else, more than anything else. David is not seeking his own good, his own place, his own rightful throne. He's not trusting in his men's plans or his but he's trusting in God as his Savior and Lord. To put it another way, Yahweh is on the throne of his heart, which is why he can love somebody who wants to kill him. That seminary student and bus driver decided to press charges. The gang was brought to court And as they were entering the court that day, he watched them glaring at him. And somehow, by the power of God, his heart changed, no longer wanting retaliation or even justice. That young man 
felt compassion and pity, and he saw that these gang members were in need of help. They pled guilty because they were, and the judge sentenced them all to jail. The young man stood up in the court and asked to be able to speak. And he said, Your Honor, I would like to have you tally up the combined sentences of all the men, and I want to serve it in their place. The judge said, that's not possible. That's never been done. (laughs) The student said, yes, it has. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, Jesus paid the penalty that all of us deserve. The judge would not allow it, so the men went off to jail, but the seminary student visited them in jail. Many of them came to faith in Jesus Christ, and that young man, two teeth missing, bloodied and bruised, started a ministry in South Chicago to those very men and their friends. The only way to forgive to love and desire the best for those who threaten our kingdoms is if we are taking refuge in God alone, if the true king, the true anointed one, is on the throne of our hearts and nothing else. Let's pray. Who, O Lord, can save themselves? Who can heal their own soul? If we are honest, we know that our shame is deeper than the sea. But if we can see the cross, we know your grace is deeper still. Though our hearts are far away, your love goes further still. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. God, help us to see this to believe this, and to live it with all those that we see. Amen.